All right, well, we have before us tonight a very important topic. It's one that I think has been met, and I've experienced as well, that has been met with a lot of confusion, a lot of debate even among Christians, among evangelicalism, and even among those who would identify or consider themselves to be Reformed. Not everyone agrees on how to exactly understand this doctrine, how it is that it takes place in our life. And of course, you have your outline. I'm speaking of the of question 38, which is on the topic of sanctification, the doctrine of sanctification. Now, that is what our question tonight asks, simply, what is sanctification? Now, we need to remember, because I think this will help actually to clear up some of the confusion on this matter, we need to remember how and where this question is actually given in the Baptist Catechism, because I think that was an intentional. We've been saying before that the way that this catechism is put together, that, that all catechisms are generally put together, are done so in a systematic way. They're meant to build upon each other and teach upon each other as we come to a fuller understanding of the truths that the whole Bible is teaching. And so the Baptists here, when they put this in order, and by the way, it's in the same order, um, at least this section. There's a couple questions that are off because of some different questions preceding it. But the questions that are around this question, what is sanctification, is in the exact same order as the Westminster Shorter Catechism. There's a lot of similarities between the Westminster Shorter Catechism and this Baptist Catechism that we have been using. But this is coming to us, this question that is, uh, what is sanctification, is coming to us under the subsection of salvation. Uh, the, the Baptist Catechism has this question following other questions such as regeneration, um, justification, adoption, which Pastor Nick did last week, and then after this is going to touch on the topic of glorification. All of the, the shun words, essentially, the T-I-O-N shun words, and except for one, which is actually not a T-I-O-N shun word, but it's still a shun sounding, a conversion. We, we talk about usually conversion when we speak of these Christian doctrines of salvation. Conversion is, is usually caught up in the greater topic of salvation or soteriology, and it, it's fine that it is. It's not out of place per se, but I will argue tonight that the Baptists and even the Presbyterians in their, in their version were strategic in not placing a question about conversion here in the Catechism at this specific time, here among these other shun words. Uh, this is question 38 tonight. We don't actually see the topic of conversion being addressed in the Baptist Catechism until question 93 or 94. And it's under the topic of faith and repentance at that point. And my point here is to, is to say that that was a wise move on their half by, by these other brothers who put together, and sisters who put together this catechism. And the debate which we now experience in our day could have some resolution, could have some of the heat taken off of it, if we thought about it in the same categories as these saints who went before us uh, did at one time. So I don't want to give away everything up front, so let's read the question and answer, and then we'll point out the outline that I think exists within the question, and you know, just know, of course, there's lots of things that we can say about sanctification, but I'm aware of our time limits tonight. I'm very tired myself, and so we're just going to try to stick to what the answer says and go from, and go from there for the most part. So, question 38, what is sanctification? And the answer, of course, that the Catechism gives, it says, sanctification is the work of God's free grace, just basing that off of 2 Thessalonians 2.13. Um, you can open up there if you'd like now. Uh, where it says, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Okay, so for the outline, it 
seems pretty simple to me. We have first what we might say is a simple definition of sanctification, which may or may not be that simple, actually, but I'm saying it's simple, at least here in the answer. And then we have an explanation of sanctification that comes in two parts. And each part that, there that explains there are two subsections that we can focus on, and each of the sections has proof text associated with them. So this first section that I wanted to speak about, uh, the simple definition of sanctification, and before we get to what the catechism answer supplies, I have to give a little bit of framework of building up to, again, what this, this debate, this discussion that exists around this topic that I mentioned, because this is where the debate actually hinges. And what I'm specifically thinking of, of is the answer to this question. Is sanctification monergistic or synergistic? Now, those are terms that hopefully we are all aware of in this room, hopefully that we have heard of before. Just in case they're not, though, let me make, make them clear just, uh, just in case. Typically, when we think of within the realm of theology, right, that we're in a specific science right now, when we think of monergism or monergistic and synergism or, and synergistic, they have to do with the doctrine of regeneration, of being born again. And so what they mean in this context is close to what it means here as well, but it's, it's slightly different. And so monergism then would, be, would mean that God operates all by himself in regenerating the sinner. God all by himself without the help of the sinner, works to create new life in an individual. That would be a monergistic view of regeneration, a monergistic view of salvation. Uh, monergistic, mono, right, from, from one. A regeneration is, is all of grace. It's all of the work of God alone. And then, of course, that's contrasted with a synergistic view of regeneration. Synergism is a position of those who hold that salvation involves some form of cooperation between divine grace and human effort. And we could open up a big floodgate at this point and talk about what those things exactly are, but we're not going to do that tonight. Uh, synergism, with the prefix of sin, implies a, a togetherness, with two things working together. And so, like for example, when two people have synergy, we, we mean to say that, hey, they really get along. They really, they really you know, meld well together. They really act well together. And so again, the synergistic view of regeneration says that man cooperates with God in regeneration. And this usually falls under the category of faith and regeneration in our evangelical context. So the monergism view, the classic reform view, would say that regeneration precedes faith. Faith is truly something that a person exercises, but it is exercised after the person has been born again. Regeneration precedes faith. It comes before. It's monergistic in that sense. That's how the catechism addressed it in the effectual call, actually. I think you might have taught a little bit on that. I know I did one of them. Um, that is with regeneration preceding faith. Conversely, the synergistic view would place faith before regeneration. So faith in this view becomes the catalyst for being born again, and it becomes the reason as to why one person is saved and another person is not saved, because of the faith that they exercise. And the Baptist Catechism rejected that understanding of this important topic. Now, as I was saying, this question of sanctification being monergistic or synergistic is where the debate tends to happen today between, between brothers and sisters, between people, even in the Reformed camps. And some of the question of this in this debate itself could be 
I think, diminished if we were just thinking about categories properly. And one way that people have tried to do this, I'm thinking specifically in recent years of a pastor named Kevin DeYoung and then also Michael Riccardi, they have come to even question the notion of using monergism and synergism to describe sanctification. It would be their view or their encouragement that we shouldn't even speak of, of, of sanctification with monergism and sanctification. And the reason they do that is, again, because they're wanting to pour water on this debate. And if it's helpful to do so or not, that's not easy to answer. I'm not I'm trying to do that tonight. But ultimately, we do want to think of this question, because it's an important question concerning our sanctification. And the answer, of course, is going to define sanctification. And we'll explain what that is more significantly in just a moment here. But we need to think of an introductory question, which will help us think of the rest of the definition of what this doctrine is. And so we need to have this, I think, more settled first. And actually, the opening line of the Catechism is addressing this, I believe, as well. So maybe said a different way, rather than saying, is sanctification monergistic or synergistic, we could say it like this. Is sanctification something that God does alone, or is it something that we cooperate in? In other words, does God sanctify us all by himself, or does God do part, and then the individual does some part? The individual has a part to play as well. So you could frame that by saying monergism and synergism, or you could just say it more plainly as I did. But either way, this is where the debate is coming and landing at. And I was saying that, again, there are good brothers and sisters on both sides of this debate. But I'm not going to be so charitable tonight to just leave it like that. I want to give you what I think is the right view and, and, and the reason as to why I think we should have a view in this. Because... Answering the question, which I've already posed, will actually, if we answer it in the right way, I think lend us to having a greater joy and a greater assurance in our salvation. And those are important issues, aren't they? Joy and assurance and salvation and how we, un how we understand sanctification speaks to that topic. So let me tell you where I land up front. Uh, this would be in step with what the Catechism teaches, I believe, as well. And so I want to assert this to you all tonight. Uh, sanctification is the work of God alone. Sanctification is not something that we contribute to. Sanctification is something that God does to us. We do not sanctify ourselves. Or as the Catechism answer puts it, sanctification is the work of God's free grace. That's how it opens. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. Now we'll look at the verse cited here in just a moment, but I want to remind you of what I asserted previously that this is where this question falls in the Catechism. It's right in the middle of a list of doctrines that concern salvation. There is regeneration, the act of God quickening a dead sinner and making him or her alive in Christ. We talked about justification, the act of God declaring a sinner righteous based on the merits of Jesus Christ alone. Uh, nothing that the individual sinner contributes to that at all. There is adoption in which God, in love, makes us part of his family. We don't make ourselves adopted. He adopts us, and we are glad that he did because of the regeneration that he worked in us previously um, before. And if we're thinking of a logical order, God bless you, a logical order of these doctrines, we are glad that we are adopted because of the new life that he has first worked into us so that we know it's a good thing. And then in the coming weeks, we're going to speak of glorification as we continue through the catechism. Bless you. And glorification is where God raises us up in our new bodies to enjoy the new heavens and the new earth for all of eternity. Now, all of these matters, all of these doctrines are related. 
and sanctification—excuse me—sanctification is numbered there with them. Perhaps you may have heard it said like this before. I feel like this used to be a more popular statement. I don't really hear it all that much often today, even though I would agree with the substance of what's being taught and saying it. But it's this statement that sanctification and justification are two sides of the same coin. Is that something maybe some of you guys have heard before? I think uh, Pastor Larry used to say that somewhat regularly. What is meant by that, of course, is that when a person is justified, they must also then be growing in conformity to Christ. It's the idea which is true that a, a person, when they are saved, will recognize Jesus as both Lord and Savior. Uh, no room for this Savior only, but no Lord nonsense, or Savior only right now, and then maybe in the future, God willing, Lord then too. That doesn't exist. It's Savior and Lord. Now the issue with the coin analogy, and mind you, I don't think there's a problem with it in and of itself, is that it's usually mentioned in light of God doing all the justification, that there was you know, a care by saying that to not frame our lips to say that we justify ourselves, even if our doctrine of regeneration would elude to it, essentially, because we, we say you know, faith precedes regeneration. But at the same time, they'd also say that sanctification is something we do. And I, of course, would disagree with that. And it's complicated further by the notion of progressive and definitive sanctification. And we'll mention those in a moment. And I think those are actually dealt with in the catechism answer that we have as well. I plan to talk about that. But here's what I would like for you to notice as we consider if sanctification is a work of God alone or a work of God and man in cooperation. Remember again where this question falls in the catechism. Remember that the doctrine of conversion isn't mentioned until the 90s but it's this section on salvation. You have sanctification listed right alongside regeneration, justification, adoption, and glorification. It's like a five-fingered punch that I'd argue destroys the notion of a man-centered doctrine of salvation. And so if regeneration, and granted, we're not looking exactly at what the Bible says specifically. We're looking at the ways brothers and sisters have thought in in years past. Let me put this together. But I would say... If regeneration and justification and adoption and glorification are all acts of God by himself in which he acts upon us, then it would at least be logically consistent. If we are thinking systematically, which is often a good thing to do, then we should also best understand sanctification as it being a work that God does to us. Just like we don't want to frame our thoughts to think, oh, we have an assistance, we assist in regeneration, in justification, in adoption, or glorification, we should also apply that same mindset to this subset doctrine and soteriology of our sanctification. It is the work of God. Um, I would argue this is the testimony of the catechism question and answer. Note how it starts again. What is sanctification? The answer we read, sanctification is the work of God's free grace. It's the work of God not the work of God in the individual. That's not what the catechism answer says. It doesn't say that in the answer, that sanctification is a cooperative effort, as it's commonly referred to today. Even Kevin DeYoung, who I like, uh, is a pastor in a united Reformed congregation. That means he, he holds to the three forms of unity. He says this. He says, those who say sanctification is monergistic want to protect the gracious, supernatural character of sanctification. And he says, those who say sanctification is synergistic want to emphasize that we must actively cooperate with the grace in sanctification. These these emphases are both correct, end quote. And then later in the same article, Jung says this, 
God sanctifies us, and we also sanctify ourselves, end quote. And I personally at least don't want to join him in that. Uh, what I think he does is conflate categories. You see, we, of course, do make choices, we act, and we act out of what God has done in us. But those actions don't actually sanctify us. They are the fruit of it. We'll, we'll consider this in the last section of the Catechism Answer, um, specifically how it is that we act out of this work that God has done, but we need to keep these two things distinct, sanctification and good works. There's no doubt that the Bible teaches that God works in us and we work, Philippians 2.13. And it's certainly true that works may be described as a cooperation of sorts, but this is the kicker. Good works are not the same thing as sanctification. Sanctification is something that God does to you and in you. As the Catechist answer states, sanctification is the work of God's free grace. In it, he is conforming you to the image of Jesus. Good works are something that we do, but they are only the result of God's work in us. Part of the outworking of the sanctification that is done to us by the Spirit. You, you don't sanctify yourself, not even partly. That is the work of the Spirit and the Spirit alone, if we are to believe what this Catechism answer says, at least. We don't give ourselves grace, do we? That is a, a popular, actually, psychobabble thing to say to ourselves today. Oh, just cut yourself some, some grace. But even better, we should seek grace from God. And, and, and grace is from God. It is unmerited favor. It is not something that we deserve or that God owes to us. And so think with me here for a moment. If we cooperate with God, in, with our sanctification, what does that make of grace? Sanctification can't both be a work of God's free grace and then also something that we do, because if we do something, then we need to get rid of grace, because then it would be, become something that God owes us. You've done the appropriate number of Christian duties, good works. Now you have, you have therefore sanctified yourself. Now God has to give you the sanctification. You have just destroyed grace in that, in that concept. Our working and obeying is not an effectual cause of our sanctification. We don't make ourselves holy. If sanctification were synergistic, we would literally be contributing a portion of the grace and power which sanctifies us. And this would mean that we would at least partly sanctify ourselves while the Holy Spirit does the rest. And I'm just not comfortable with that. I'm also not comfortable with it for pastoral reasons. Uh, when we make sanctification, even partly the result of something that we do, we, at that moment, cease to preach Christ, and we preach ourselves. And I, I get that it comes from a good intent, an intent to encourage holiness. I want to encourage holiness as well, uh, but I want to do it in a right way, in a way that contributes to the Christian's joy as well as to the Christian's rest in Christ. Because if we make sanctification dependent upon us, then, if we are given a glimpse of the reality and we see that we're not as sanctified as we really would like, a primary resolution for us would simply be to try harder. And if anyone here has strived against sin and you know its battle, and we put ourselves in a position of robbing ourselves of joy first because now the Christian life has become something that we must earn and solidify. I just need to try harder and I'll be more sanctified. And then we also, at the same time, will end up ruining our assurance, because at this point, our assurance becomes attached to our performance. And that's a bad thing. 
even if we perceive ourselves as doing something good, if we ruin it, because when we're being honest, we know that we can't really do a truly good job. None of us can meet the, the standard that God has set. That is perfection. And so we end up at that point, you know, doubting at some point in the, in the scheme of things, doubting our salvation because it's in some way dependent upon what we do. And we end up wondering if we're actually saved. And so listen, in both of these, look where your eyes end up if we contribute to our sanctification. It ends up on us. That is not what I would want to tell a Christian when they are struggling with something, when they are lacking joy, when they are lacking assurance. I would encourage them to look to Christ because Christ is holy. Jesus did everything that was required for you to be saved. Jesus is the one who is sanctifying you. Look to him. Pray for, for grace. But it's not up to you. You will fail. You will not do good enough. But thanks be to God that Jesus did do good enough. And it's by Christ that we have access to the Father. And I believe that what our catechism answer is doing and saying sanctification is the work of God's free grace is reminding Baptists and those early um, Presbyterians again, same thing, is that sanctification is this work of God because that is something that contributes to our joy and our assurance. Now, I don't specifically like I'm not crazy about the verse that they chose the proof text here, but it does work. It's not bad or anything like that. It, it definitely addresses sanctification, and then it also kind of speaks of the good works that flow out of our sanctification. So if you have your Bibles, um, 2, Tim, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. This is the second letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to these saints. And he's dealing um, specifically with doctrines, with teaching concerning the second coming of Christ and uh, the man of lawlessness, some, some difficult passages here. But in verse 13, that's the, the verse that the Catechism cites. It says, But we ought, so he's speaking of himself, uh, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So there you have it. God chose you, saints, as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification. Sanctification is related to these doctrines of salvation. We've already mentioned that. But notice, we are saved through, it says, sanctification by the Spirit. Not by us, are the first fruits, saved to the first fruits through sanctification by the Spirit. Not by something we do, by sanctification of the Spirit. It's a work of the Spirit. It, the work of the Spirit is what makes us a saint. Sanctification and saint are related words, nearly synonymous, really. When we are sanctified, we are made a saint. We are set apart by the Spirit. That's what, it, that's what it means to be a saint. That's what it means to be sanctified. And so in that sense, we might think of sanctification in those two familiar categories. Uh, sanctification is in one sense definitive, meaning it's a one-time act that occurs at salvation. We are set apart from the world. We are united with Christ, as it were. It's definitive. It happens in time once. It's very closely associated with our justification at that, in that regard, isn't it? But sanctification is also progressive. It's not stagnant, in other words. The Christian grows in his or her sanctification by the work of God's Spirit as he sees fit to move. It's often in conjunction with prayer. God ordains the ends of all things. 
but he also ordains the means that lead up to those ends as well too. And so if we are praying, Lord, sanctify me, God, give me grace to put to death this sin, it's not actually you that's sanctifying you. It's God who's still sanctifying you, but he's, he's doing, he's accomplishing that end through the means that he's also ordained as well too through prayer. It's operating out of it. The really um, the appropriate language I think we should all be using and comfortable with when it comes to the relationship between sanctification and the actions that we do is I think that we should use the phrase that we operate out of the gracious works that God do in us. We don't cooperate with these doctrines so as to cause them. We don't do that with regeneration, adoption, justification, glorification. We don't do it with sanctification either but we operate out of them. We respond, in other words, uh, to them. And then look how 2 Thessalonians 2.13 ends. It says, Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Isn't, now, trying to, I want to try to be clear here. Belief in the truth isn't part of sanctification by the Spirit, but it flows out of that. Belief in the truth here is really attached to that positive statement preceding the point of sanctification. It has to do with God choosing us to be the first fruits to be saved. So if you look at it, but we always ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved and belief in the truth. When a person is saved, they are believing in the truth. We can even skip the sanctification portion in there. Um, Belief in the truth is attached to that positive statement preceding the point of sanctification. It has to do with God, again, choosing you to be the first fruits uh, to be saved. And so, in other words, all who are saved believe, in other words. Why? Because they've been born again. We talked about that a few sermons back. But believing is, isn't what part of sanctifies, that isn't what part, isn't part of what sanctifies us. Belief flows out of, the, out of salvation's graces, even. Sanctification being one of them. Let me read to you all from the Second Lundis Confession. Um, this is on your outline. I will. I put the whole thing on the back. It's good. It's complete. We don't have time to discuss all these points uh, that it makes in detail. I'll give a it's much more comprehensive than the Catechism, of course, but I'll highlight some of the more related parts just as we read through it, and then we'll move on to the next sections just briefly for time's sake. So this is chapter 13 in the Second Lundis Confession. It's on sanctification. And it says, those who are united to Christ and effectually called and regenerated, so again, it's related to these other soteriology doctrines, um, they have a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the power of Christ's death and resurrection. Okay, not what we do. It's through the power of Christ's death and resurrection. They are also further sanctified, really and personally, through the same power, by his word and spirit dwelling in them again. Not by what we do, but by the power of Christ's death and resurrection, uh, his, through his word and his spirit dwelling in them. Then it says, The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed, and the various evil desires that arise from it are more and more weakened and put to death. That's describing sanctification. At the same time, those called and regenerated are more and more enlivened and strengthened in all saving graces, so that they practice true holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Again, justification, sanctification, they're absolutely related. None of this, Lord, Jesus is my Lord, but uh, is my Savior, but not my Lord business. And the second, and there's a bunch of proof texts you could look at later. Secondly, it says the sanctification extends through the whole person. 
Um, that's very close to what the Catechism says. It says it talks about the whole man. Uh, and then it says, though it never complete, though it's never completed in this life. In other words, nobody will ever, even though God does grow us sanctification, we should be, we should not be surprised when we see a person who has been walking with the Lord for many years being more holy than they were when they first were saved. Where we should be surprised, and this is probably too common in the church in America today, is when someone has been professing to be a Christian for many years, and they are not walking holier in the Lord than they, than they did many, many years ago, when they are stuck in a position of immaturity. It could be possible that that is the case, that is God's will for them for some reason, but it's, it's, it's not the normal way of things happening. Um, Nevertheless, we can never be so sanctified to the point of where we are perfect. Uh, the Wesleyans used to uh, teach a doctrine of perfectionism. And so that also would be rejected by the Second Lenin's Confession. It says, yet, though, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part overcomes. So the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness and the fear of God. They pursue a heavenly life in gospel obedience to the commands that Christ as head and king has given them. In Oops, did I just read this third one? I think I might have. Let me go back up. Yeah. Um, so the second one says, This sanctification extends throughout the whole person, though it is never completed in this life. Some corruption remains in every part. Um, from this arises a continual and irreconcilable war with the desires of the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. You might think of Romans chapter 7 especially. Uh, and then it says in 3, In this war the remaining corruption may greatly prevail for a time, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part overcomes. The point being, again, sometimes our sanctification feels stalled. <laughs> we are stuck in sin, and, and that is common to the Christian life. But look what the Baptist um, brothers have, have said here. They're saying that we grow, and when, when, that, when, when it does stall like that, the solution isn't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Try harder. It's not it. It's the sanctifying spirit of Christ uh, that we overcome. And then it says, So the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. They pursue a heavenly life in gospel obedience to all the commands that Christ as head and king has given them in his word. So again, sanctification is something that God does to us. It is a free work of God's grace, and it produces something in us, a real true change. And God, in his sovereign will and plan, doesn't sanctify us all at the same pace. I wish, maybe, you know, some parts of me, wish, I wish I was further along here and there. But we trust the Lord and his wisdom as he, has, as he is using us to accomplish his will in this earth and, and calling all of his children to holiness, of course. It's just at different speeds. So, second category, sanctification, what it does. I think um, the confession was really helpful in a comprehensive statement on what sanctification is. Again, we don't have time to go into all the parts in detail. It says more than the catechism says, but it also addresses what the catechism does go into. So let's think of this new section, um, what sanctification does. And so we read, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. That's the second section in the catechism answer. Whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God. So again, sanctification does something to us. We are renewed in the whole man. Uh, one, and then secondly, that renewal is after the image of God. This is speaking more so to the definitive category, I think, than rather than the progressive category of sanctification. It's speaking to the change that happens in us, and it 
doesn't just happen to our spirit and our flesh is left to simply enjoy corruption or something like that. It's the whole man which is renewed after the image of God. It's body and soul that is being renewed, not so much in the way that the effects of sin are removed from our flesh. I mean, think about it, a person who has like destroyed their teeth through prolonged drug use. If they receive Christ and their soul is renewed and they're born again at that time, they aren't given a fresh set of teeth at that point, right? It, there, are the, there are the immediate consequences of sin that remain in our life even after, um, that could remain in our life, that often do, even after we receive Christ. But um, what this does mean when it talks about the whole man is speaking to how we use our body uh, for things which will glorify God. But we don't, by the power of the Spirit and the work of grace in us, always choose sin because we've been born again, because we've been justified, because God is in the process of sanctifying us. Again, that notion of a carnal Christian just simply doesn't exist. We can't claim to have our souls saved, but then simply gratify, or but then desire to gratify the desires of the flesh and our body. And so Paul would say this in Romans 6, 13. In Romans 6, 13, the apostle says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. That is alluding to the sanctification of the whole man. That is, that's using the body for righteousness because of what has happened first in our souls in our salvation. And the verse of the catechism cited is Ephesians 4, so let's turn there. We'll consider that just briefly. Ephesians 4, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. That's how I have to remind myself all the time. Ephesians 4, 22 to 24 says, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So you can see why this verse was chosen, I think. It speaks of being renewed in the spirit of your mind. It contrasts the old man with the new man, right? Or the old woman with the new woman, if you will. For the Christian, there is an old self and there is a new self, which uh, new, an old self which belongs to your former manner of life and a new self which is created after the righteousness of, of God. The old self is corrupt through its deceitful desires. The new self is chasing after a true righteousness. is created after the likeness of God and true righteousness. And try to remember now, let's not confuse the categories, putting off the old self and putting on the new self are certainly good works. Those are certainly good things to do. Those are certainly things that you know, a person who's not saved would, can't do, wouldn't want to do. I mean, they, they're just stuck in their old self even. And the actions themselves glorify God. That is the purpose of good works, that and the benefits that they provide to other image bearers as well. But we aren't forced to say that the act of doing so sanctifies us. In fact, the point that the Catechism is wanting to make is that we do these good works because we have been sanctified, because of the pre-existing work of God's free grace. This is what sanctification does. A sanctified person does this, this putting off of the old man and the putting on of the new man. Not enough time to get into all of those details, but the point is sanctification does something to us. It renews the whole man after the image of God. And then we 
make we do good works out of that. Now the last section, sanctification, how it operates. We are enabled by progressive sanctification at this point, um, which is the act of God continuing to grow us, and it does it in these two actions, one positive and one negative. Negatively, we're enabled more and more to die unto sin, and then positively, we're enabled to live unto righteousness. So Wilhelmus Abrakel was a Dutch theologian. Uh, he says this, he makes clear that sanctification is a work of God. He says, God alone is its cause. And he says, as little as man can contribute to his regeneration, faith, and justification, so little can he contribute to his sanctification. And then he explains that good works flow out of sanctification like this. Excuse me, this is from um, his magnus opus, The Christian's Reasonable Service. He says, believers hate sin, love God, and are obedient and do good works. However, they do this neither on their own nor independently from God. Think about it for a moment. Would any Christian want to say that they do those things on their, in their own strength? Not at all, right? We depend upon the Lord for that. And it says, Rather, the Holy Spirit, having infused life in them at regeneration, maintains that life by his continual influence, stirs it up, activates it, and causes it to function in harmony with its spiritual nature. You see, believers do something. We're enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness, as the Catechism says. But the act of doing so isn't what sanctifies us. Sanctification is again a work of God's grace. We're enabled to do more and more uh, to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. Uh, the Catechism cites Romans 6, 4 through 6. If you're in Ephesians, just a couple turns of the page over. Romans 6, 4 through 6 reads, and again, we're thinking of this progressive aspect of sanctification. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So again, it explains the two parts. The work which God does of sanctifying us, and then also the necessity or the necessary fruit of that, that we are no longer, by God sanctifying us, no longer enslaved to sin, so then we choose to do things that will honor and glorify Christ. But the Bible, in so much as I can see, doesn't ever affirm that we are sanctifying ourselves. We are certainly called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as Paul writes to the Philippians. But again, that working is simply our good works because of the good that God has done. Philippians 2.13 goes on to say, right after he instructs the saints to work out their salvation with fear and trembling, he tells them this in verse 13. He says, For it is God who works in you both to work and to will for his good pleasure. Right? It's God who does it. So God himself is a sanctifying agent, friend. We are acted on by the Father, Son, and the Spirit as they work to magnify the grace and honor of God in us and so that our boasts then would only be in Christ. Not us, but in Christ. Sanctification is a blessing of the gospel. It is, again, just like the other blessings that come to us in the gospel, not something that we deserve, not something that we merit and cause to come upon us, but it's what God has done for us. So, I labored to make it short.
<laughs> so I am ready for any questions. May I, we could pray after we do our questions, after you guys berate me and beat me. And <laughs> so that way. Yes, Adam. I don't want to be a one. <laughs> but those would definitely be related to all of that. Yeah. John. That that is sancti- being that's sanctified. The certainly certainly that I think is the fr- no no certainly I think that is the fruit of sanctification that we become more obedient to God's law. Right. So we've talked about this before that God's law, the Reformed have seen it specifically in three categories, three uses of it. Um, that would be the you know the the third use of the law in which it shows us what is pleasing to God, and so we by grace you know seek to obey that. Even what you were saying earlier, I think the right-headed or minded Christian, when they wake up in the morning, they don't say, I'm going to be obedient to God today. They're, they, they understand their sin. They understand the, the struggle that they have in their nature uh, that still has those Adamic effects from the curse upon it. And so they pray, Lord, help me to be obedient to you today. I know your law is good, I want it to guide me. I, I want it. your law as a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. But we, it's nothing that we do in our own strength. So we look to the Lord. We approach the Lord humbly. But So I'm not sure if I answered your question per se. Okay. I would never tell a Christian this. I would never say, okay, look, I, if somebody comes to me and says, I am struggling with my sanctification. I really want to grow in sanctification. Well, I wouldn't simply say, here's the law of God. Now just do it. Try hard. <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't say try harder. I, I would say, this is the law of God. It's good. Praise the Lord. You see that you are failing to meet that standard. Thanks be to God that Christ fully met that standard. And let's pray for grace and mercy so that you can put this sin to death. Yeah, no, I agree. I think the mystery of Christ and that saying is, you know, Christ is fully Not 
It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I live in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. That's right. Live by faith. All right. I didn't, we'll go to Ross first. Oh, yeah, so I think that was in the context, if a Christian came up to me and said, hey, I'm really struggling with my sanctification, and uh, this, this area here is, you know, I keep falling into sin, I wouldn't say, here's the law of God, now just simply do it. Of course, you know, I want them to do it, and they want to do it as well, so I would, I would try to encourage them in the sense of, look, it's, here's the mercy of Christ in your life, that you see you're not living up to this standard, but let's pray for grace. Let's remind ourselves of the, the power that we have in Christ, you know, I, I wouldn't put it upon them to simply do it in their strength and power. I would compel them and go with them in prayer to the throne of grace where we can, see, where we can receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. So, yeah, I think that's yeah. kind of like, it's, it's kind of like fine line, right? Like that was the, the Augustine prayer, right? Like give the God's command and command God's will, right? So it's like, yeah. yeah, yeah. do the law, but not in your own strength, right? Right. So like I would tell them, Absolutely. But the idea is not to not do it abroad, but not do it in your own strength. Yeah. Um, when you mentioned, are we, there's questions and comments, right? There's questions and comments, so yeah, can I? John said that, yeah, yeah. Really, that may be triggered, but obviously because that's one of your teachings in Sunday school, and that's one of the, the texts that they use for the sanctification is. Um, it's funny when I read that, I remember when I was reading that portion, it's like uh, the Apostle Paul knew that better than, than anyone, right? When off the old self because of his such a radical conversion. I think about how he was killing Christians, and then it was God alone who, you know, called him and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And you see it, like, really play out in his life, like, thoroughly, like, there's obviously no human effort in Paul's, you know, <laughs> work of sanctification. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I mean, even to hear him preach that, like, I think he's, like, the ultimate example of knowing that his sanctification clearly, his, his conversion and sanctification clearly wasn't, um, Well, there's definitely yeah there's definitely a structure in Ephesians where those first three chapters are explaining what what has been accomplished what God's you know the theological things and the practical aspect that come and again I'm not saying part of I'm just what I'm wanting to say about sanctification and its relationship to the law is I'm saying that our keeping of the law doesn't sanctify us our keeping of the law is good and right but we do it because the Spirit has been sanctifying us. Um, and part of the trickiness of this all is I don't think you get chapter 4 without chapters 1 through 3. No. So the structure and the context of the letter is he has really hammered in the grace early on so that that foundation has been firmly laid and the cornerstone is set. So now he can get into that practical application of it. And I think too often, even pastorally, I struggle with this sometimes, that I don't lay a foundation of grace thick enough before we begin to look at the practical aspects of how this plays out. 
And when you fail to do that, you use that person up to stumble over their own failure. And to really put the focus on how weak they are and how little they can do, instead of just hammer it into this is Christ's victory, and let's pray for his victory to manifest in the ways that you obey him. So Yeah. We don't want to make the other error that says, Hey, Christ has done it all, so it doesn't really matter about the law. <laughs> You're, you know, you don't want to go that route as well, too. You want to emphasize the goodness of the law, the necessity of it, but again, the, also the necessity of grace uh, for you to keep it. The law does have sanctions to it, right? So like, oh, yeah. if a woman comes to me and she's like, my husband is beating me. I'm not like, let's just pray that the Lord will give your husband grace and make him treat you more. I, no, you tell the cops. Right? Some churches have done that. That's true. You, you yeah. That's a mistake. Involved. And you bring the hammer yeah. down on that guy, and then from so, his yeah. prison cell, you preach grace to him. You know, <laughs> but you can't just you can't just spiritualize everything. And so I can understand why we would make mistakes in this, and with good intentions in mind, say, well, practically it has to meet some of us and some of the Lord. No, I, I love the clarification of the category. I think it's been really helpful to me tonight to just think about that in such clear regard that it, it has to always be the outflow of what what God is doing in the heart. But there is practical ramifications, and sin does have, it's, it's, whether it's condemnation for the lost or chastisement for the believer, there, there are negative things that come when we break the law or we ignore it and we live outside of it. Yeah. Go ahead. There's definitely a law in my house. Yeah. So they aren't running wild. <laughs> clearly, like also discipleship without having to remind, like that you're saved by grace, right? Like I, I would assume everyone in here knows we're saved by grace. I don't think we have to say when you say don't steal. Like by the way, a law teaching doesn't save you. But I think like there's another issue that's tied to this that stumbles people a lot. I know early on for me, it's like the thing that we all wrestle with. Do you think that the monergistic perspective? And this probably would be John question to jump in. The monergistic perspective that ties people up is when they think of God doing the work, is they think of like, well, it's God puppeteering me. It's God, uh, like, I'm sort of making you do these things and that I have no involvement. So, how do you, how would you respond to the person that would bring this objection? Like, well, it's God doing everything, but obviously I'm just kind of being puppeted. And, you know, then why even try if God's going to do it sort of back to you? I agree with that. That is difficult. Uh, yeah, I'm fine with number one, just first off saying it is it, it is difficult we are creatures god is the creator and so for us to try to perfectly understand how he works is, is we're starting already from a disadvantaged point even this morning we know what we know in this age we know in part it's partial and so i would at the same time say what i even said tonight is that god not only ordains the ends but he also ordains the means and so so if like if we're trying to put this in a practical situation um, some so and so you know Johnny is a new Christian and he is uh, he steals a lot right and so we say look hey here's Ephesians 4 it says let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone who's in need and so say look this is what God's law says this is good and 
you need and you need to be reminded of the fact that you are a new creation in Christ. You have been born again, and so let's you know ask, let's approach Christ and seek you know for grace to obey this. But I, I don't know if I'm missing your question in that. But so so it's monergistic. Yes, it's God who's going to do it. But again, there's a means by which He does it, and He invites us to take part in that means. So the same thing is with you know when we think of um, evangelism. Well, yeah, God can you know God can apostle Paul everybody if He wants. He can meet somebody on the road to their work and just and cause them to be born again. You've seen that meme probably where Paul's on this horse and he's like falling off, and he's like, okay, now you choose to make Christ your Lord, right? It's, it's, it's ironic because that's not how it happened. But God could choose to do that with every single person, but he hasn't done that. He has said in Romans 10, you know, that um, blessed are the feet of those who bring the good news. And so he, adorn, he ordains not only the end, that monergistic part, but the, the means. And that the means for us in this sense isn't something that we are contributing to, but it's we are operating out of. And when we think of our sanctification, at least. And, no, so. I mean, I agree, but just I think when we have a consistent view of sovereignty, um, <clears throat> we know God is the ultimate cause of everything, right? Mm-hmm. When it comes to our sanctification, um, it first came to mind right here in First Peter. It says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father in sanctification, the Spirit, for obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. So if we don't really hammer grace, I think, like I was saying about how, well, we instruct people, um, it goes back to what Nick was saying, the first three tra- chapters of Ephesians, he's just laying the groundwork of the grace before he starts giving instruction, right? Because the Spirit, when he sets us apart to obey God's law, it, which I think back to John 3, right, the Spirit blows where it wills. Okay, our sanctification works is very similar salvation. I would say identical. I mean, we, we have nothing. Can't separate it, right? Yeah. yeah, what's that? Can't separate it. No, you can't no. because, you know, when... If you love me, keep my commandments. <laughs> right. And, and it's God, I always think of sanctification beginning in heaven, the throne of God, working its way to come to us, and God decreeing and determining these things to come into our lives. And I just think that we miss as Christians, obedience itself is a gift of God. Mm. You know, there are people in Second over to disobedience. Romans 1 as well, right? Yeah. Right, mm-hmm. and they're, they're cursed children. So, um, we can't sit up here and say, well, I'm going to pound my chest now because I obey God. Yeah, you obey God because God gave you the grace and he also taught you the grace of God that teaches us to deny and Eyes off ourselves, eyes on Christ. I think you almost just maybe inadvertently describe, I think it might be in Luke, where it contrasts the two people praying, the one Pharisee who mentioned and listed all of the righteous and good works they did, and the one sinner with his head bowed down. God, have mercy on me. But yeah, good works aren't bad. They're definitely good. They're needed. They're, they're, they're the fruit of it. Yes, sir. So... <coughs> If we can articulate this, I have two thoughts going um, related. When I was originally taught about 
education, it was not just a one-time event. Mm -hmm. Sanctification would start with being set apart from being unsaved to saved. It would end with being set apart at the return of the second coming of Christ. Glorification, right? Yeah, we're mm -hmm. at glorification. Mm -hmm. That's the end of sanctification. You're set apart to eternal life rather than to hell. And then there's everything in between, which a lot of people refer to as uh, progressive sanctification and the, the uh, they're alluding to maturing in Christ. And, and we just talked about Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6, and that was the first thing that I was thinking about um, when we said that it's 100% it's God. And so I'm, I'm going to give three passages, two in Ephesians, one in Hebrews, that are, well, what about these? So Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, and it starts out with, he gave the apostles and the prophets and evangelists, da, 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 uh, for teaching and etc. to mature manhood, dot, 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 so it wouldn't be tossed to and fro. Uh, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we're to grow in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself in love. Uh, the implication there is that God enables, but it's time for us to do our part. I'm, I'm not saying that that is accurate, but that you can see how that would be implied. And then you go to Ephesians 5.15. Uh, look carefully then how you walk. Like there's a choice there. Mm -hmm. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. The days are evil. And then it goes gets into a lot of behavioral. And it indicates that you do have a uh, you do have choices to make. And I don't deny that without God that you would be able to make these choices. I mean, he gives us the very air that we breathe, and if he decides not to give me the next breath, then I'm not going to be around to make a choice. Then in uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 6, um, starting at the beginning of chapter 6, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not landing. Again, a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God and of instruction about washing, to laying a hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. This we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, and shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the world. But you, you know the passage, or as, uh, as Joe Biden says, you know the thing. <laughs> so here it is. We're being admonished yes. to not uh, misunderstand the truth, mm -hmm. but rather, you know, get with it. Mm -hmm. Recognize the truth. If you don't think you know it, find somebody that does learn about it. Read scripture. So part 
it, it seemed like I've always learned of progressive sanctification as something that you are very much involved in as far as you make a choice, as far as whether you read the Bible, learn about God, grow to maturity, get weaned off the milk and go to meat, and that we are involved in that. And it's not that we exercise incredible power because God enables every single thing that, that we do so that we can't go and point to ourselves when we score the game-winning Super Bowl touchdown and look at me, I'm great, and say, no, you're, you, got, you caught that pass because God allowed you to live and to have the body they have. So God enables us, and, and it just seems like we are involved we are. Yeah. so much. Yeah. So how do we reconcile that to uh, a monergistic approach? Yeah, absolutely. Progressive sanctification. Absolutely. So, the the point that I was that I was wanting to make is that not that we are not absolutely uninvolved because we do. What I what I said was that we work out of the sanctifying work that God does, and the good works that we do, those don't actually sanctify us. They're they we do them not for our own benefit. We do them for the, to glorify God and to for the benefit of fellow image bearers is how I said that. Um, but the doing of good works, the making of good and right choices, isn't what, and which is something that we do and want to encourage, that's not what actually sanctifies us. Those give God glory. Uh, they, but it, it is the work of God himself to actually do the sanctifying. So the, the, you know, the way that I've always heard it from the pulpit was... Me too. That's why I've always heard it as well. You're setting your, yourself apart from the world a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. You're learning more. You're, you're learning not to fall into the trap. You're learning to be more courageous. Sure, I absolutely... Yeah, yeah. Dot, dot, dot. I heard that, you know, very long time. I've sat under that type of mentality to it. My, again, my concern is that we have just ceased pre- preaching Christ at that point. We have, we have destroyed grace because I've done a little bit, I've done a little bit. Well, now, now what? Now God owes you? What, what, is, what, what is the end goal of the objection there? So as I said, I would say that any good that we do, we praise the Lord for it. And I wish I think you would agree with as well. Um, you know, not by my strength. Uh, even, you know, Paul could boast in his, in, in, and be glad about his weakness. Because in it, Christ's strength was made manifest. So I, I am, again, I'm not wanting to say that there's a total disconnect from our, from God's work of sanctification and then our good work. Right, God (laughs) sanctifying. Yeah, yeah. Keep putting little energy bolts into our head. I'm just saying, yeah, the good choices that we make, that I hope that we also desire to make and are wanting to make, the the positive action of doing them isn't contributing to our sanctification. That we can't give ourselves that because if we could, then again, we're not preaching Christ. We are abolishing the concept of grace because at that point, then God owes us that growth. No, if that makes no. sense. I just want to add to this. I'll get to you next. Okay. The creator is not subservient to our 
So what, what is the word that you use for that process of maturing? Progressive is still fine. I just talk about even the catechism answer breaks down into the two categories. There's the definitive one that it highlights first and the progressive nature where because we, um, how does it say it, that we grow um, and we learn to essentially put off the old man and, or it says enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto righteousness. That's how the catechism answer put it. I, I feel that's progressive sin, right? More and more, enabled more and more. Um, I think I even mentioned that we should be surprised when we see a person who has been a Christian for a long time and yet they are an infant in their maturity. It doesn't make sense. It could be true that they're a Christian, but maybe also not. Maybe, you know, those that passage that you mentioned in Hebrews, I think part of the problem is we tend, especially as Baptists, tend to not read those as actual real warnings, and that's to our detriment. Um, because they are true warnings. Uh, you know, they, there is a danger of people falling away, not truly falling away because, they have, um, because they've been saved and they can lose their salvation, but there are people who make false professions and they believe themselves to be saved, and yet here's you know, their sanctification, and in the case of Hebrews 6, has stopped. They're wanting to go back to the old covenant even, and so he's warning them, hey, look, you're going on a path that is going to end up in destruction look to Christ now. And so, I mean, again, that's, that's a means. Preaching is a means of sanctifying people, of calling people to repentance. And that's part of that. And it's certainly even maybe more so than some of the other letters. I, I, I don't know that I want to say that all of the New Testament letters are like sermons, but I think certainly, I'd say with great confidence that the letter to the Hebrews is a sermon. It exegetes Old Testament passages. It's, it's filled with exhortations and calls to repent. Hebrews is a little bit of a unique letter in comparison to some of the other letters as well. But that's definitely a good struggle. So there is, we, I, want to make, I don't want to, to do away with attention here at all. I'm not trying to do that. There's absolutely a, a way in which uh, God sanctifies us and we do good works and we increase in good works. But I just want to be careful to say that the good works that we do aren't actually what sanctifies us. They just simply are for the good of other image bearers and for God's glory. And God, in His wisdom, is pleased to maybe continue to grow a person. And it's not in just it's not in conjunction, or it's not disconnected from the person's will. Again, God ordains the end, but He also ordains the means. And so, one of the things I think is a sign of a mature Christian is somebody kind of alluding to what we were talking about earlier with Ivan and John. When they when you, when a Christian wakes up in the morning, they're aware of their need for grace and mercy, and so they're praying, Lord, I want to obey you today but I know I don't have the ability of my own strength, so please help me. Help me to, to see where sin, help me to see temptation where it's coming, that I may avoid it, that I may turn my eyes, or whatever it is that uh, the temptation is. And so it's a, um, it's a process in which God is mysteriously, mysteriously, through your union with Christ, accomplishing his ends through a means of desires that are being brought up in you through the spirit that is in you as well. Uh, I, I know it's getting late. I'll, I'll just throw one more thing. Sure. That 
tied into this. When, when I think of something as uh, being uh, monergistic, um, I think of it as being supernatural. Mm -hmm. When I think of us reading the Bible, praying, over time becoming, again, uh, more knowledgeable of God's word, understanding the truth better, in theory, our behavior uh, will emanate the light of Christ. Um, that is, uh, that's not supernatural. That's a, that's a natural act. So that's maybe what is causing the well, it's always su supernatural. Because to say that something that's, that's natural is, uh, you know, where we're involved, we're you know reading our Bible. Just stick with that. Mm -hmm. um, that is a natural act. That is not a supernatural act. But it does become a supernatural act for the spirit-filled believer, right? So you can have like Bart Ehrman, who probably knows his Bible better than many professing Christians because he used to profess to be a Christian. He was like a pastor, I think, at one time. But now he's like a well-known atheist who debates Christians and tries to catch them up. And so he knows the Bible. He knows what it says, but he doesn't believe it. He doesn't keep it. Yeah. Um, and so the act of a Christian who reads the Bible, that is a supernatural, who, who, uh, who, who reads it, believes it, and builds their life upon it. That's not a natural act, right? That's a, that's a supernatural act. That's a work that is done in you. Well, it's kind of, I'm thinking in terms of, uh, maybe, maybe I am. Split in terms of something, yeah. When, you, when you're reading a math book, and uh, you know you learn more math over time. You know, you, you go from algebra to trace to, you know, calculus, calculus whatever. Yeah. It gets more and more complicated. And that is a natural act. It is. Uh, I just want to ask you this, Russ. If you study epistemology, God, who continues us in grace and sustaining our life, our mind to function correctly, you can pick up that book and be distracted and all those things. It's God who grants you the success to do those things, right? You look at the man in Psalm 1. Yes, he's actively studying and meditating on God's law, but it's God who makes this, what he does is possible, right? So I think it's a miracle like Paul saying. Yeah, I, I think I, I know. I think I know what you're saying. Okay. Um, and I'm thinking it's perhaps a little abstract. It is. But yeah. I get what you're saying in data loss. So my wife is calling me twice. And time to go. Whatever category of life it is in, even you know, if I, I can't do uh, calculus at all. If I was, I would not want to boast in myself for it. <laughs> I would I would boast in Christ. Let my boast be in Christ. Um, <laughs> maybe think of a good, here's a good song, we sing it here, um, yet not I, but Christ through me, right? Whatever it is, yet not I, but Christ through me, you know? So anyways, good discussion, guys, there's more, um, we could do that too, but we should pray, so that way people have to leave, they, they are free to. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for giving us time uh, together this evening, and thank you for this, the full Lord's Day that it has been, and we praise you for your kindness to us. Uh, we do want to grow in our sanctification, Lord. We do want to be more holy because we see in your word that you instruct us to be holy. For you say, be holy as I am holy. 
Nevertheless, we know that we do not have the ability and the strength in ourselves to make that happen. So we pray for more grace, Lord, that we might please you in the things that we do, all the while knowing that we are perfectly pleasing, are pleasing to you and accepted to you in the beloved, your beloved, eternally begotten Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hebrews 12 is one of the